Welcome listeners to another exciting episode of the Darren Batchelder Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. Today, we're thrilled to introduce a powerhouse in the world of commercial real estate, Paula Nichols. With a portfolio boasting over a thousand apartment units and a solid background in management consulting, Paula has made her mark in the Texas and Oklahoma markets. She and her husband, Jonathan, founded their firm, Apogee Capital, after a successful stint in residential real estate investing. So let's delve into her journey and insights into the multifamily real estate investment world. But before we get started, if you're a high net worth individual looking to preserve your capital and build your wealth responsibly by investing in multifamily real estate, visit darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call and schedule your discovery call. This episode is sponsored by Cashflow Portal, real estate syndication software that accelerates capital raising. I'm both an LP and a GP in many multifamily deals. I've used many different software applications for the capital raising process, and I like Cashflow Portal the most. I'm so confident in the software and the Cashflow Portal team that I've become an investor in the company. If you are a syndicator looking for a software platform, then let the Cashflow Portal team know that you heard about them on Darren's podcast and you will automatically receive three months off an annual contract. You can find the company at cashflowportal.com. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Paula Nichols. Paula, appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Darren. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. This is the first time that we're, we're actually talking, um, but I had her husband on the, on the show, Jonathan Nichols, episode 164. Really enjoyed our conversation and what they were doing. And then, um, you know, Paula is a partner in that company. So I figured, you know, it's a good time to get her perspective on things as well. So with that, can you share with the listeners how many properties and how many units uh, you guys are invested in? Um, yes. Yeah, so from a multifamily perspective, we have around 400 plus units in the Texas and Oklahoma markets. And then we are LPs in uh, about a thousand units. Uh, we also have a portfolio of short-term rentals, about around 20 of them. So um, we like to diversify a little bit. <laughs> that, that's fantastic. Um, you know, I... I have not done any short-term rentals. Um, I heard the cash flow was amazing. I don't know if it still still is, um, and that there's you know different things going on with different municipalities and HOAs and different neighborhoods that could be challenging. But if you're in the right area, people are just killing it with the, with those short-term rentals. That's correct. Yeah, we are very thankful to be in the right area, um, highly regulated, but we were aware of that before coming into this market. So. Fantastic. So one of the things that you like to talk about is, you know, what passive investors should look for. So, you know, three topics that passive investors should be asking um, their syndicators uh, before investing in a deal. So maybe if you could start with, um, you know, sharing that 
with our listeners? Yeah, of course. So I guess a little bit about me. My background was in finance and management consulting um, prior to transitioning into real estate. And um, my husband and I, we like learned a lot. We read a lot of books. We read, uh, listened to a lot of podcasts, like probably many of you um, listening today. Um, but then we realized that we needed to put all the puzzle together. And at times we made decisions that were partially informed. And um, if we had all the information or if we had asked those three key questions and had the right answers for the three key questions, we could have uh, saved us time and probably saved us um, some money along the way. And so the three questions are very simple. It's who, what and how, which is high level umbrella questions that we've been asking since elementary school. But the who, it's just so important. Um, I think that in the syndication world, you're going to see a lot of people who have different backgrounds, who have different experiences, who are investing in different assets. And so it's asking who is your syndicator? Who are you investing with? And what is their actual professional experience? Um, everyone has started somewhere. And so sometimes maybe they don't have 50 years of experience in real estate, but they do carry some professional experience that is related to what they're doing today and they can leverage those skills into this new industry. And so I think that really honing in into who you're investing with, who these people are, what is their professional experience, what is their level of integrity, um, have they worked hard at something before and what, how do they react to challenges? And so I think that asking this question before you invest with someone is so critical. And I think at times we, we look at Instagram or we look at LinkedIn or we look at a great website and we trust because it looks nice, because people like their post. Um, but I think that really drilling into who you're investing with is just critical. And yeah. so that's the first question. So I just want to add, add to that piece. So I think that that is, in most syndicators that I've talked to say, you know, the, the, the syndicator, the, you know, picking the jockey, not the horse is, is you know, the prudent way to go and um, can make the, the difference in a deal. I would also add to that that it's, it can be the team too, um, that the, you know, you could have, a first-time syndicator, like you mentioned, that had a good background and has strong ethics, um, and but they they don't have the track record, you know, for multifamily. But they're partnering with a team of other general partners that do have the experience. Yeah. Yes. Correct. And I think that um, in part of the uh, the class that we're putting together, we are kind of drilling in into who this who is. Right. Um, sometimes we don't know who has voting rights on your deals. So even though I may be trusting you, Darren, with my money, you may have no say on the deal, right? Or, you know, if someone is trusting me, I may not have any say. I may be part of a group of 15 GPs into this deal. And when things get hard, you may not have a say. And I actually had that experience as an LP where I went to the person and said, well, I don't agree with that. Are you escalating this? You know, are you speaking up in your GP meetings? And that person told me like, I actually don't have any power by both voting rights, you know, per the management document. And that was a big eye-opening experience for me as an LP, um, you know, because I don't think that we ask that question enough. And, and it's okay if you don't have enough voting rights, at least being transparent with your investor prior to um, bringing them in. I think that that's critical. Right. That's, that's very important. So um, get into the other two questions. And I want yeah. to go back to, you mentioned, you know, having a a class, so I want to make sure we hit on that as well. But let's yeah. let's go through uh, so question two the and next three. question. It's the what, and it's 
at least understanding the asset that you're investing in. So I have a lot of investors who come from investing in the stock market. They're just looking to diversify and grow their wealth like faster, right? Uh, but I highly encourage all my passive investors and anyone listening to get to know a little bit of the asset, get to know a little bit of what you're actually investing. Like for example, if you invest in stocks, you're probably not gonna know everything about the fund that you're investing in, but at least you'll know the level of risk, um, you know, the who is managing your fund, etc. And so I think getting to know the type of building, the city, the market that you're investing in, uh, the vintage of the building and what that means for you as an investor in regards to risk, right? So if it's older, if it's newer, how, what, how is that impacting your risk? And are you accounting for that whenever you're making your decision of investing? And so I do think that that is very important um, to ask what you're investing in and, and at least having a high level information of the asset that you are in a way purchasing. And then the last question is the how. Um, how, meaning what is the business plan that the GP team is looking to implement in this project in order to increase, you know, the value of the property and ultimately sell and make those returns. And so I think that being very aware of what the business plan is, again, you're not going to have to be, if you're a passive investor, you're not going to have to be in the weeds of these different implementation and, you know, and actions. Um, but at least you will understand the high level idea and you will agree, yeah, that, that's feasible. That makes sense to me. Um, I believe in that the risk of implementing these actions, it's, you know, um, it's palpable for me. I understand it. I get it. If there is delays, I will understand the high level picture. Um, and so I think understanding that that business plan is so, so important. And we've had, you know, from our projects perspective, we've had uh, projects where we're just coming in and improving the marketing plan, improving the operations. That was a very easy, you know, 2012 project, uh, building 2012, very nice property. We're just increasing and organically increasing these rents because of the lack of marketing that the, the owners previously had. Previously had. But now we have other projects where we are coming in and we are increasing rents because we are doing the turnovers in the in the units. We are changing those uh, countertops, paint, etc. And so that usually takes a little bit more time. And um, I think that our investors are able to understand both situations and in a way keep us accountable and understand what we how we are increasing the value of the property. I think th those are three great questions, and and I would I would kind of you know, I'll get your perspective on it, but I would kind of add to that, you know, when you first get into this world, you mentioned like somebody that was maybe only in stocks and was looking to get into the real estate world. Part of it is every industry has its own terminology, its own language, you know, its own words. And so how do you learn those words? You know, you learn those words through books and podcasts and, and also, you know, I, I don't know if everybody is aware that they can sign up for webinars and listen to a deal, you know, being presented by a syndicator and not invest. And that's a great way to learn. So if you get on the invite list, so you to five, 10, 15 different syndicators, then when they have a deal, they're going to email that out and then you register for the webinar and then all of a sudden you hear some of these, this terminology and you hear what their business plan is and you start to learn from that. Yes, I 100% agree with you. And um, that's part of why I wanted to 
kind of share on this class was to be able to walk someone through what this looks like. Because when it's, when it's your first time, you have, you know, a few days to decide, are you investing fifty, dollars $100,000, $300,000 on a deal? You, it's probably not at the best time to learn how to read, uh, you know, OM, you know? And so I think that it's very helpful to go ahead and review, go ahead and join those meetings and ask those questions before you're ready to invest um, so that you can become familiarized with those with those definitions. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about what you're doing. Um, you know, you're putting together a class to, to help people. Yes. Um, so I mentioned that earlier, you know, before doing real estate, I did uh, management consulting. And part of what we did there was a lot of organizational management um, and um, OCM. And so uh, we realized that people feel more comfortable making big decisions when they know and they trust the people that they're doing it with. And so we decided to put together a class that is going to last around an hour to an hour and a half, depending on what speed you use to uh, watch it. But it basically goes from A through Z when it comes to passively investing in multifamily. And so it goes from what is multifamily, all the terms, all the basic definitions, and then doing the due diligence as a passive investor. And so I think that there are some terms, again, that I, I mentioned earlier that maybe we didn't understand, maybe we didn't know about, or we didn't questions we didn't know to ask. Um, prior to passively investing. And so we're going to cover all of those in depth during the class. And the goal is for you to be a more informed investor when the next opportunity arises. Absolutely. So, I mean, two ways to learn is actually to do it, you know, or learn from others that have, have done it. So, you know, if you learn from others, you can avoid some of the mistakes. You can't learn everything uh, before That's getting right. in the game. Um, but, you know, you can you can save yourself some, um, you know, a huge time savings and also huge dollar savings by learning from, from other people. So, you know, listeners, I would highly encourage you to take advantage of that. How do how do people get involved with that? Yes, uh, they can visit our website, apogeemfc.com. There's going to be a registration um, pop up there that you can just complete, pull up your name um, and your email and you're going to get more information when the class launches in October. Can you spell that website for us? Yes, Apogee. It's a p o g e e m f c dot com for multifamily capital. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So, let's talk about husband and wife working together in the real estate business. You know, were you both when you both started? Were you both like we want to get in real estate, or was one more interested than the other? We were both interested and we get that question a lot. And so um, we really think that it was more of a calling for us. Um, We, you know, Jonathan was an aerospace engineer. I was doing consulting at the time and uh, we were busy and we enjoyed what we did, but we couldn't see the progress in corporate America as fast or like as fast as we wanted it. Right. We were putting a lot of hours, but sometimes it just takes seasoning and, and we understood that, but we had bigger dreams and, real estate came in into that point in our lives when we were both seeking to have something in common. And so we both found real estate really as a hobby. And uh, we started investing in single family um, as a side hustle and something to do together and something to do, um, something to have fun with. And so we started investing in single family more as a hobby and then realized that this was like a true passion and a true calling for us. And that's how we decided to kind of grow our single family portfolio and then transition into multifamily. Um, I think that we both bring different strengths. We have different personalities, um, different skill sets that we brought again from corporate America. And um, 
that we were both always on the same page that we wanted to do this. And I think that that has been the uh, funnest part of this journey is that we both are really passionate about what we do, even though we bring a different perspective. Um, but it has been encouraging because there are hard times, right? There are times where you're very stressed and um, it's very um, powerful when you have someone next to you who knows you and says like, hey, this is going to work out because of X and vice versa. That, that's fantastic. So you mentioned that you come come at it from different skill sets, different strengths, different weaknesses. Do you focus in one area and he focuses on a different area within the business? Yes. And so at the beginning, you know, probably four years ago, it was mainly both doing everything and no one had a direct swim lane. And so until we started seeing it as a formal business with departments and different things like that, then we were able to to really honing into wherever the person shines. And so Jonathan focuses on acquisitions. And even though I did study finance and I did look at a lot of, a lot of modeling um, for many years, that's just not like I don't that's not my passion to look at spreadsheets forever. Uh, but he he is actually extremely good with numbers and he comes very easily and he talks to all the brokers in the area. And I think that that's just he's spot to shine. And then when it comes to me, I am much more on the asset management side of things, as well as our business development with our investor relationships. And so that's kind of where my focus is. Um, even though, you know, we both talk to investors, we both talk to brokers, that's kind of our focus. That's awesome. I, I've heard that from other very successful uh, couples that, that work together, that the same exact story in the beginning, they were both kind of doing everything. And then once they, you know, carved out like, because at, nobody does things the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're most real estate investors have an entrepreneurial, you know, um, you know, gene in their button that they want to do it their way. So if you give you something to do and Jonathan, something you may both do it great, but do it in different ways. And so I've heard from other couples that the minute they, they, trusted that their partner would handle it and they could just go off and do what they're best at that it became so much smoother of a process yes a hundred percent and i think at first it was because it was not a business and then when we started seeing it as a formal business we decided to okay in order for this to work you have to be the decision maker in this aspect and I need to be the decision maker in this aspect. And I don't know if it's a personality type, but when I am not in charge of something, it's easy for me to not like fully grasp what I'm supposed to be doing. And so it becomes very, as you said, maybe you're just not as effective, you know, and efficient as you could be if you, you are the person in charge of a certain, you know, action. So. Yeah. I mean, they say that if you have to teach somebody, that's when you learn the best, right? Um, right. So another thing you said before, which I want to hit on is, is bigger dreams. So, you know, you guys realized that real estate was a passion um, and you realized that real estate had better returns than, say, the stock market for you, for you guys. Um, you know, I think that, you know, having bigger dreams is important. And I think that some people are very afraid to go mm -hmm. after bigger dreams. And I also think that, you know, bigger dreams doesn't mean that when we're talking in real estate, that you have to be the one, you know, executing on it. You know, passive investors, I know some passive investors that 
that they're professional passive investors. They're in like 40, 50 deals. And, you know, they, they are very good at selecting the deals that they're involved with and picking the teams that they're involved with. Um, but, you know, they have bigger dreams in a different area and then they use real estate to get the higher returns so that they can go after their bigger dreams. Yes. So, you know, talk a little bit about that, both for you guys and also for passive investors. Yes. And so at Apogee, like part of our mission is to empower, you know, people to leave their calling. And so we believe that each human being, you know, was born with a calling in this world. And it could be to be a doctor or to be a teacher or to be a professional, whatever you are in the corporate arena or not, to be a stay-at-home mom, whatever you are, right? Passive investor, it does not matter. I feel like you have a calling that it could be greater than whatever you do. And real estate just comes in as a way to provide you with the resources to to be able to have that freedom, right? To have the freedom to say, well, today I choose to be a teacher because I love it. I'm not doing it for the paycheck. I'm not doing it because I have to, but I, I get to do this. And so uh, with that in mind, I think that for us, it just, it felt that we were pursuing entrepreneurship because it was something that we wanted since, I mean, I wanted to be an entrepreneur since I was like 14, right? I took entrepreneurship classes. I created my own business plan since I was like 15 in high school, you know? And so there has always been this seed of wanting to be an entrepreneur, of being passionate about, I mean, I helped my mom sell her house when she, I was 15, right? And so, or buy her house when I was 15. And so there was always this seed in me that wanted to follow that. So I do this because I love it. I don't do this because I have to. And right. so I want right. every investor, passive investor to, to be able to have that choice, right? That if they're investing passively in real estate, it's not because their passion may not be go and buy apartments. Their passion might be is to be the best dad or the best director at their company or whatever their passion is. And so um, I do agree that this is just an avenue to support those dreams and to support that calling that they might have in their life. And um, yeah, you don't have to be active. It, it's it's a job. Like it's not, it's not, you know, some people start in syndication as active and they're like, oh, you know, I, it's a part time. And I, I really do think that it's it's a very demanding position when you're dealing with other people's money and when you're dealing with these size of projects. And so, um, yeah, I, I do think that people can pursue their calling through passively investing in real estate. And, and really, that's part of our mission. So I, I love that. I didn't even know that was your mission, but that, that's fantastic because I because I believe that, you know, there are people that say, um, you know, follow your passion and the money will come. But there are some people that are passionate at doing things that don't bring a lot of money, you know. And so using real estate or another avenue, um, real mm-hmm. estate is, is one avenue, um, to provide the resources so that they can follow their passion. I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. So talk about some of the, the learning lessons. You know, there's always, you know, some kind of trip ups, you know, both as an LP and also as a GP. Um, that you've learned along the way? Yeah, I know that's a great question. So I think that the first one I alluded earlier uh, as an LPA thing is asking the right questions. And that's partially why, again, we're putting together this course, a list of like 10 deep questions to ask your syndicators. And so I think for us is learning to ask the right questions. That's like the biggest lesson learned for us as, as LPs and really as GPs as well, just as professionals. And then I would say number two is to define the swim lanes of responsibilities early on. I think, you know, we said it earlier, 
people are more efficient and effective when you keep them accountable and they're directing, like they're owning what they are working on. And so I think the quicker you're able to, for those who are actively syndicating, the quick, the quicker they're able to have people and assign people tasks that they own, um, the quicker that your business will grow and the more that you will be able to accomplish with less time. Um, and I'll say a third one is that I think relationships are so important. I think that we will not be here today if it wasn't for, you know, friends and family and mentors that had influence uh, who we are today. And so I think that getting to know people at a deeper level, um, I struggled on 2020 when it comes to, you know, meeting people online. That was just not how I normally do uh, relationships, but I think that I look back and I think that even if it's online or if you're busy or if it's on Saturdays or after work or whatever, I think that continuing to deepen relationships with people that you admire and that you just want to be friends with, I think that that's just so critical for your success as limited partner, but also just for your overall joy in life. Um, so. so I'm going to hit on the, the third one that you talked about first. Um, relationships, you know, relationships can come in so many different ways that are important. One, you know, if you're looking to get into this business, look, Paula mentioned, you know, her first question is who, well, how do you meet the who's, you know, well, you can go, you know, you can sign up for, if you want to do online, you can sign up. There's a ton of different um, online webinars, you know, you can sign up and meet people from that. Um, you can go to free meetup groups, you know, I, I remember I was afraid, I was scared to go to my first free meetup group, you know, because you're, you don't know, you, you think that everybody else in the, in the room is going to be judging you because they know a lot more than you do. And, um, but at the end of the day, people, what I've learned is that people want to help each other. And so you go there and you meet other people and then they make you at ease. And then you, you meet people that are further along than you are. And then you can ask them the questions. How'd you get there? Um, also, going to conferences. I've heard people talk about, you know, uh, conferences. They, they just want my money. They just, you know, they just want me to fill the seat and, you know, me pay a tick, you know, ticket price. But, you know, somebody brought up something like they went to a conference with the goal of meeting a partner. And they went to the conference and they told people what the, what they were looking for. And they actually he actually met his business partner that he's been partners with for like the next 10 years. Wow. And he, that wouldn't have happened had he not gone to the conference. Yeah, Darren, and I think you touched on a good point that that's part of my lessons learned. And something that I'm continuing to, continuing to learn today um, is the fact that I go and I meet amazing people and then I don't follow up with them. Right. I don't have a plan when I go. And so I think having a plan when you go into these conferences, when you go into these meetups, like what is the desirable outcome? Right. And obviously relationships are organic and it's natural, but you do want to have like, what is it that I'm trying to get out of this? Uh, but then also follow up. And if, you know, whoever is listening, if you're a little bit like me, sometimes you go and you have a great time and you meet so many people and I get so excited and so fueled by these, you know, relationships. And then it's like, oh, okay, I met them, but I don't follow up with them. 
And I think that having that discipline to after the conference, after the meetup, coming in, entering the information on your CRM, if you have one on your phone and just following up with those people that you think that you can create value for them and that they potentially can create value for you. I think that that's a big step that that I missed for a long time. Yeah, I'm, I, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, going to a meetup, there's some meetup groups where they might have a guest speaker come and talk and and then you go and you meet, you know, people that are both other passive investors, you meet syndicators. And I, I would give the advice to people, you go, look, go with business cards and make sure that every syndicator in the room that you meet, you give them your business card and say that you're potentially interested in passively investing. Then you get on their database, then you get invited to these webinars. The one or two or three that you really you know, like and think that you might want to invest with them, ask them, they don't have the time to spend a half hour or an hour with you at that time. So ask them, hey, would you be open to getting together with coffee with me this week? And most syndicators are going to say, yeah, you know, so they end up getting together and, and you learn about the individual, you learn about the industry and you, uh, you walk away with more knowledge and you built the relationship. Yes, definitely. So um, asking the right questions, you know, talking about the who, the what, and the how, um, what, you know, earlier when you were talking about a story about the um, investing with a GP that didn't have the voting rights, I kind of got the sense that there was something that happened after that. So I guess I'm digging in a little bit to find <laughs> out on, on that scenario, what what trouble ended up coming out of not asking yes. those great questions? Okay. Um, great question. <laughs> so this was early on, on our journey in multifamily, right? And we, you know, like and trusted that person because they are very known in the syndication world and they had a lot of followers, you know, a great podcast, um, and so we asked the questions regarding the deal. So we asked the what and we asked the how. And we assumed we knew the who, but we didn't go into the granularity of asking, okay, so you are part, I, we assume that if you're part of the GP, that then you have a say or control in the deal. Um, but when trouble came on the deal, right? So there is currently, there's a different deal struggling, the bridge loan situation. And so we as LPs, um, there was a capital call um, and we didn't understand, we didn't agree on the timing of the capital call, mainly because of the current um, management of the apartment. We felt like the asset management of the apartment needed improvement before we gave more capital to the deal. And so when we went to or the GP that we had, you know, connected with and invested through, we asked, hey, can we you know, we have these certain questions and, you know, we're just not wanting to put more money until we understand why the asset management have, hasn't performed. And he basically told us like, actually, I don't have much control in the deal. I have tried to ask these questions, but they're not answering. And so for me, that felt like a lack of like my trust kind of broke at that point because I was like, well, I trusted you. Like, why can we not get these questions answered? Um, and, and, you know, he was trying his best, but in reality, from a legal perspective, he didn't have control on the deal. And so that was very eye opening to me. And um, I remember asking 
that question now after every deal that I do LPs on or that I'm a GP for is making sure that we have those voting rights in place. Um, and that if I'm going into a deal that I have a say for, and we have my investors. Um, and so anyways, I feel like that story is still in flux and the outcome is still, you know, the fact is that the GP team is trying to lead the, you know, the, uh, the project um, to conclusion in a way. Um, but that was a little bit of a hard lesson because when you go to the person you trust and that person, it's not legally in control, it could be very disappointing. Yeah, sure. So you brought up bridge loans. Um, so, you know, that's the, probably the biggest headwind right now is, is higher interest rates. Um, what's the, what do you feel like the impact of higher interest rates is on you know, existing deals that you're in, both as an LP and GP, and also the outlook uh, for, you know, new deals with with investors? Yeah. Mm, so from a gen general partnership perspective, we are blessed enough to, that all of our deals are in fixed debt. And so we are extremely, like, very conservative with underwriting every deal. And all of our deals are performing to, you know, according to Performa, and they are with fixed rate, which makes our projects as general partners very safe. And so we're not being impacted by those interest rates as of today, right? Because we're not looking to sell today. So the cap rates, um, deltas don't really impact us unless we sell. And so we're not selling. Um, when it comes to a limited partnership, we do have um, a couple of deals that we invested and they are on the bridge loan situation. And so um, multiple, like the two of them are trying to refinance. Um, and a lot of, you know, peers, I'm aware that they're trying to refinance. If the deal, if the asset is performing, they're looking for a refinance option. And if not, they are looking to sell, um, but they are getting a big haircut at the end. Um, and so I think that how it's impacting, um, I think interest rates obviously impacted the cap rates um, as they ex have expanded, um, but also have drastically changed the timing and the way that people are exiting deals. And so there is, you know, this expectation almost that, you know, in the next quarter or, you know, six months, there is going to be a lot more deals flooding the, you know, a sell, you know, for sale at a, at a discount. And I put that in error quotes because, um, you know, usually those deals are the ones that are distressed. And so they will require um, you coming in with strong asset management skills with a lot of CapEx. Um, and so um, I don't have the crystal ball, but I think that it might potentially open the door for further opportunity. But if you are an active syndicator with deals in those, you know, that are struggling due to the interest rates, then you, you might have to, you know, to sell sooner than you wanted or try to refinance if your deal is performing. Yeah. So a few things on that. One is if you have fixed rate debt and you're in an inflationary environment, right? You've, you've fixed your debt service yet everything else is inflating. And so wages go up and your top line rents can go up and your, your profitability can actually improve through that with fixed rate debt. With right. the, the trouble that a lot of uh, properties have now is, is that interest rates have gone up so fast and a lot of people had floating rate debt mm -hmm. that the debt service is going up every month and it's making it difficult to be cash flow positive. And so um, I guess nobody has a crystal ball, but what's your take on, are we closer to the end 
and things will get better? Or is this going to last for the next two, three, four years? Oh, wow. Um, that's, a, that's a big economic question. That's a big question. question. But before then, I would like to add yeah. one of those questions to ask, right? That we've listed that as one of the you know questions to ask is when you're asking about the how or maybe the what is the DSCR piece, right? You can tell how safe or low risk an investment is based on the DSCR on day one in a year from now, like based on their projections, right? Like, are you today able to cover your debt service? Are you next year able to, you know, or are you banking on increasing your rents in order to be able to cover your debt, right? And so, um, and, and many business plans like that work great, but at least you know what your, your DSCR is, you know, day one in a year. What are you basing that on? Because um, I think that if we, were, if we look at that number, you can tell a lot on the, on the risk level of the asset, right? If you are at 1.2, 1.3, are you barely at a one? You know, are you barely covering your debt with your current cash flow? And what is your plan to make that, you know, a 1.3 or whatever your bank is requiring? Um, and, and so just another piece, another question to ask or look at when you're looking at a deal so, to invest in. So just to add on that, you know, for, for people that are listening that may not know what debt service coverage ratio is it's it's basically you're taking the the income from the property the rents and other income less the expenses you get your your positive cash flow your net operating income and then you have to reduce the the debt service so most banks want a cushion you know so they want a debt service coverage ratio of 120 or 125 um, to so that if cash flow goes down, there's still room to pay the, the mortgage. If you're at a 1.0, that means that all of your income less your expenses is just enough to cover the debt service. If you're below 1.0, it means that you're negative cash flow. And if you're above, then you're positive cash flow. So just, just a little bit to uh, highlight on for somebody that's completely green in the space. Yeah, that's correct. Um, regarding your question, I, I think that we are closer to when we're going to see those distress deals. I've talked to a lot of um, lenders, too. They are, they are proactively calling syndicators or you know, GP teams that are struggling to try to help them refinance. And from the lenders that I've talked to, they are saying that a lot of them are kind of holding to the hope that the interest rates are going to decrease prior to their bridge loan, you know, their rate cap um, expiring or, you know, bridge loan being due. And so what there's, you know, what, what I'm expecting, again, I don't have the crystal ball, sure, but is sure. that in the next three to six months, we're going to see more of these distress deals that we're hoping for interest rates to decrease and didn't see that, um, that they're going to have to sell. Um, again, these deals, I'm expecting for these deals to be not performing assets, meaning that they have higher vacancies or um, they were not able to refinance. Um, during this time period. And so what I would expect is th next three to six months, more opportunity on distress deals. And then in the next year, I expect for the interest rates to lower a little bit. And, you know, hopefully the next two, three years, be able to start exiting those assets with a lower interest rate. I don't think that we're going to go back to, you know, threes, but probably going to a 4% interest rate or a little bit softer in the next two years. I think that that, that will be feasible. Um, but again, reading the mind of the Fed is quite challenging and um, it can be a little bit speculative. Uh, absolutely. 
Um, you know, something that's very different with multifamily today versus, say, two or three years ago was, um, you know, there used to be a positive spread between the interest rate that you had on the deal and the cap rate you were buying it at. So, so if you had 70% leverage, you had a 70% loan on the deal and you were buying it at a, you know, five cap and you were, your, your interest rate was 4%, well, you had a 1% spread right. on, that, on 70% of the, of the loan, of, of the property valuation. And today that's flipped. So you actually have to implement value add just to break even on that. You know, the, the interest rate is higher than the cap rate that you're buying it at um, mm -hmm. in today's environment. So that makes it all the more challenging to, to make the numbers work. Yes. And again, when we're looking at risk, I think that that's another metric that you can quickly look at, right? Um, where, where is your, you know, as you're coming, uh, what is your cap rate that you're using, right? When you're purchasing and what is your exit cap rate that you're underwriting to? And are you assuming that is that going to expand or is that going to decrease? And today you can compare that to, you know, interest rates and see, are we, do we have a positive spread or a negative spread? Um, and that's part of why we, you know, when we bought in Oklahoma, which is now like a very, you know, right. sexy market, all of our deals there are ex like performing extremely well, extremely well. Um, you know, cash flow of like over 10%. And because it is a more of a cash flow play over there, it's not like naturally growing equity, but we've been able to increase the NOI by like 20%, wow. 25%. And like, you know, and so it's been, it's been a really great experience to invest in Oklahoma, but we know what we're going in for, right? We're not assuming that we're going to sell at a five cap there. And so I think that when you keep the fundamentals on mind, you can find those niche markets that work for you and that are performing and, you know, meeting those um, standards. I think that you can, find where your interest, right? So we just closed on a deal where we did a loan assumption. And so that's another option, right? If you're looking at doing a loan assumption coming into, we had like a 3.4 interest or yeah, 3.87 um, interest rate on a fixed for seven years. You know, that's another way that you can, um, in a way, de-risk your asset um, as you're coming in. Yeah, so the, that's a great point. I mean, interest rates are extremely high, but you can buy a deal from a, from a seller that already has a seven or 10 year fixed rate loan at a 3.87% rate <laughs> and then assume that loan. So you, you end up taking that loan for the remainder of, of the, uh, you know, until it's entirety, until it comes to comes due and um, versus having to go out and buy, get new debt, you know, at a significantly higher rate. Yeah. So talk a little bit about being a woman in the industry. Now, you probably had to deal with that in management consulting as well, like going into different businesses and, you know, you kind of have to prove yourself pretty quick, you know? And um, so how does that impact you in the, in the real estate world? Yeah. Well, if you have listened you know, for the last 40 minutes, you probably heard an accent too. So I'm not only a woman, I'm also Colombian and an immigrant uh, to the U.S., which um, just feel very blessed to be here. I moved, you know, to the U.S. with my family in 2006 um, for political. 2006, academy. holy cow. You, I know. <laughs> you, it, it wasn't too long ago. Uh, it wasn't. And so, so yeah, so I think that 
I feel my family is has always been like a very strong women family, right? Like my mom, she's a dentist. She worked all her life. Um, and she, in a way, was like the head of her family. So I always had a good model of like what a woman in leadership or a woman um, in, you know, workforce or corporate America, I guess not America, but corporate world would look like and was always empowered to be that and to pursue my dreams. And so um, I think it's really cool to to see all, a lot of women in business um, and kind of shifting a little bit, opening that door and opening that seat for women to sit at the table, too. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of improvements in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it was really defying that limited belief, because I will say that more than being a woman, I think for me, it was it was oh, I have an accent or I don't have the network. My parents don't have the network here in the U.S. I, you know, I went to Texas A&M, I went to business school and all of their, you know, families knew someone of some kind of power. And so I think that, that like really taking that away of like, I am here because I can create value and my ideas are important and finding people that really uh, champion and supported that. Like I had you know, a full ride to A&M all through my scholarship donors. And so I look at those people and they champion me and they supported me even when um, maybe you couldn't really see the future of where I was going to be, you know, 10, 15 years later. And so um, I think that it has been a challenge at times, but um, I always kind of have to go back to, to the real why, like why I'm here, why I'm, you know, I am valuable. Right. And I think that it's, um, people talk a lot about mindset. I think it's applicable to being an immigrant or being a woman or being uh, however many labels you want to give to that person. I think that you are important. And, and, you know, I said it earlier, like I feel like each human being has a calling in life and you have this value that no one can change, right? Like, uh, you know, I'm a person of faith, so I believe that God created you with purpose and for a purpose. And so your value cannot change regardless of your skin color or your gender or whatever, um, you know, labels, I guess. (laughs) So I I love that. I I mean, you said limiting belief. And I think that anybody that listening, that's the hardest part in life. It's what is going on in your head? What do you believe that you can achieve? You know, what is holding you back from going after something that you really want to do? And, you know, for, for Paula, you know, some of the limiting beliefs were, you know, she's a woman, she's Colombian, she's got an accent, but she pushed past that. And then she realized that she could do it. Um, she had role models that helped her get there. And if you don't have the role model in you, with your family and friends, get out and meet people. There are other people that will cheer you on and will tell you that you have value and that you can do this. Uh, whatever you want to achieve, whether it's real estate investing or starting your own company or whatever the case may be. Um, so I, I love that you were able to push past that. Um, that that's fantastic. And it, it, it's a great example for other people. So if people want to get to know you better, what's the best way for them to, to do that? Yes. So we do have a website. I spelled it earlier uh, in the call, in the podcast, apogeemfc.com. You can go there and we actually, I just started, I put out a Calendly invitation for 30 minutes with uh, people who are interested in investing or getting to know me, I'll be happy to chat with you, um, answer any questions, and obviously hear your feedback on the class as well as it's launched in October 16th. Fantastic. Well, Paul, I appreciate you coming on the show. Listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you, Darren. 
Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. <laughs>